There was a competition in Cosmopolitan magazine. I was 20, okay. probably 19 actually. It was for girls at uni uh, to write for the magazine. So I entered the competition, I, I won the London area. So I was one of, I think probably 10 from around the country. We all started writing for, for Cosmo. And I went into the editor's office one day and I was waiting for her to come back because I was going to talk to her about a student placement over the summer. Yeah. And then right here on her desk, there's this great big pile of letter-headed paper. And Cosmo has a very distinct font, a very yeah. distinct letterhead. I just sat there looking at it thinking, I wonder what would happen if I absconded with <laughs> a little bit of letter-headed paper. Yeah. And I wonder what would happen if I wrote Chris Eubank a letter to yeah. say that I'd been commissioned by Cosmopolitan <laughs> to <laughs> interview him. <laughs> Please ah. tell me you did this. Of course I fucking oh, did. Amazing. <laughs> I swiped the paper, yeah. I wrote the letter, I got a letter back from Matchroom and they set it all up and I go, what am I going to do? I've never interviewed anyone my yeah. entire life, yeah, ever. Well, I was more, more worried yeah. about what was I going to tell the editor at Cosmo. Yeah. At some point, someone's going to figure this out. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Coming from a turbulent childhood living in hostels for the homeless, Shah Wasmund was determined to create a financially secure future. While studying at the London School of Economics, she seized an opportunity to work with Chris Eubank during the lead-up to the biggest fight in British boxing history against Nigel Benn, and ended up making a proper name for herself in the sport. Her intelligence, determination and savviness opened doors, and soon she was helping build a brand of a small vacuum cleaning business with a little-known inventor named James Dyson. Several successful ventures, a Sunday Times best-selling book, and an MBE later, Shah has become a truly great British entrepreneur. She's a joy to talk with, and I can see why The Telegraph described her as having steel balls with spikes on. This is the eventful life of Miss Shah Wasman. Shah, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, nice one for coming down. Let's roll all the way back. Um, where did you grow up, and how did you first know you were an entrepreneur? Um, I think I'm totally and utterly unemployable because <laughs> I've got way too many opinions for someone else. Um, I was born in California, came back here when I was two, went back to America when I was seven, came back here when I was 11 and then stayed here. So had a pretty dysfunctional childhood, mm. I would say, like, you know, parents who went through a really terrible, violent, acrimonious divorce. And so when we came back to the UK... Um, I, I lived in a hostel for homeless families, so we literally had how, fuck all. How old were you then? 11. and Back in England? Back in England at 11. Okay. And the worst possible time, if you're an 11-year-old girl, mm. you've got an American accent. I've been eating McDonald's three times a week because my mum was doing like four jobs. Mm. I was probably like 30 pounds overweight and I had a stupid American accent. And I had to go to a new school yeah. and make new friends. And I lived in a hostel for homeless families, so I couldn't tell anyone where I lived. Wow. It was about as shit as I can remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereabouts in London were you? I wasn't. I was in Hertfordshire. So, okay. yeah, I was just outside of Hertford. Okay. And then um, went to school in a place called Ware, uh, all-girls school, and absolutely fucking hated it. <laughs> Hated it. Why? What? Just big all girls school, or I don't think what? it was the all girls school that mattered. Like when I was in America, was um, it a private school? No, was it normal? Okay, yeah, no, 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 no. We literally had no. We were like literally waiting for the council to house us, yeah. and whilst we waited for the council to give us somewhere to live, best part of two years, we lived in a room half the size of this. Me, my mum, and my brother. We shared a kitchen and a bathroom with five other families. Mm. I mean, you know, I think that was genuinely the making of me. But it was, it was, the reason it was so shit was because when I was in America, again, it wasn't a private school. It was just a public school, mm. a state school, a regular school. Mm. But it was really progressive because I, I was born in, um, I was born in California, but I was born in and around Sunnyvale and Palo Alto, which is where all the big tech companies were yeah. starting to spring up. And so the parents who were sending their kids to, to this, the school that I went to, they were all like, you know, artists and teachers and computer people and they they were all just like 
maybe they were intrapreneurs, right? Mm, so they mm. weren't running their own businesses, but they all were creative and had ideas. Mm. And so the school was filled with kids whose parents really gave a damn. Yeah. Like they really wanted to contribute. And when I was at that school, um, they they did me like an IQ test and then they put me a year above my age. Mm. And rather than it being like, I think it would be in this country where it was all like, you know, you're better than everyone else. There it was like, we had to go and do all these exploratory things. It was just like so mind expanding. Mm. Like I was always stretched and challenged and Brilliant. never felt like I was better than anyone, but felt like I never felt like I was bored. I was always challenged. And when I came back to this country, they said, oh, no, it's, it's wrong for you to be a year above your age. You won't be able to make friends. And so, you know, the way we work in this country is you have to be in the age group in the year that you yeah. were born. And from the moment they did that, I just switched off. Yeah. I just had no desire to be at school. Mm, I get you. I hear you. I seriously hope my son never listens to me. <laughs> or at least until he's 18. <laughs> so from that age then, 11, what was your kind of route from there then? Did you stay to school to 16? What did you do? What was, what was your movement? So uh, from 11 to 16, I, I've never smoked. Mm. I've never drank. Mm. I've never taken any drugs. Mm. And that's primarily because my dad did all of those mm. to an excess and I saw all the fallouts as a result of that. But... What happened was I just rebelled in every other way possible. So I didn't go to school for two weeks. I argued with all the teachers, yeah. especially the history teacher. Mm. Um, and <laughs> I, I, she absolutely hated me because I'd get straight A's. Yeah. And I'd be back chatting, telling her she didn't know about the American Civil Rights Movement. And I told her that you can't teach just about Martin Luther King if you don't talk about Malcolm X. I'm like, where's the context? <laughs> She's like, you can get out. Get out. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> I just had a really tough time. Like, yeah. like I hated it. And when did it? How long did the American accent last for? Because it's a pure London accent right now. It is. <laughs> Fortunately, I got rid of it. I think in about. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a story that apparently, if you uh, move countries before you're 13, you can your accent will change to the country that you move to. But if you move countries post 13 then you will keep the accent of the country mm. that you came from. So fortunately, I lost the accent in about, I reckon, probably about a year and a half. Mm. Um, Is that, did that help you? Losing the accent. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Losing the accent and losing the weight because yeah. the one bad thing about being at an all-girls school is the truth is girls can be absolute bitches, yeah. right? So if you don't fit in because you don't wear the right clothes or you don't look the right way, or you don't sound the right way or you're not the right size yeah. or whatever the right thing is according to them, yeah it's just not a nice environment. So I think that's partly where I built up a lot of resilience. But then I got very lucky. Um, in my last parents' evening before my GCSEs, the teachers were literally either, Shah is the best student, like my mm. English and history, we've ever had, we adore her, she's a genius. Or I'm like, I don't even know who Shah is. She doesn't yeah. come to any of the lessons and she's gonna <laughs> fail everything. And um, I decided, I've got to do something about this. Mm. So I turned it around. I applied for scholarships to private schools in London and I got a full scholarship to the City of London School for Girls, which is like one of probably the top three schools mm. in the whole country. Where, and whereabouts is that in London? It's Moorgate. Moorgate, okay. And um, that experience changed my life 100% because up until that point, I'd really believed that rich people hated poor people. It was a really bad thing to make money because you had to sell your soul to the devil yeah. and they were just not nice people yeah. because that was my experience being poor. Yeah. And I remember being interviewed at the school by Lady France. I mean, mm. she was so posh. I'd never <laughs> met anyone so posh in my entire life. I, 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 it was one of the very few times in my life I genuinely felt intimidated. Yeah. But she was an absolute fucking remarkable woman. She sat there, she looked at my school reports and she said, Char, you know what? I think you've been really misunderstood. So here's the deal, you come here and we wipe the slate clean and you start again. Do you agree? And I said, absolutely. Happy days. Do you know what she did? She shut the book, she picked it up and she dropped it in the bin. Happy days. And that tiny thing yeah. shifted everything in my head. Yeah, brilliant. So what was your movements then? What was your movements after? Were you looking to earn money from, if you were from a poor background, was it about earning money and having comforts and nice things in life? It was about having financial stability. Yeah. I've worked since I was 13 years mm. old. Mm. So I started a Saturday job when I was 13, worked every school holiday since I was 13. Mm. I mucked out like riding stables when I am massively allergic. I would have such bad asthma, I couldn't breathe. My mm. face was covered in welts. I would basically, I cleaned toilets, mm. hospital toilets. 
I've done everything. Mm. I, I I got a scholarship from McDonald's um, when I went to university to pay my university fees, right? And um, I'm a vegetarian. And what is a scholarship <laughs> from McDonald's? <laughs> So is that a five star badge? You have to pretend that you want to work there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I pretended that yeah. I wanted to go on their graduate fast track yeah. scheme, and I'd got into the London School of Economics. So it stacked up like great university. Yeah. Okay, she must be smart. Oh, we'd like to have her on yeah. our. And uh, so you go through all the interviews, and then they they pay your fees, right? So they okay. pay your university fees. Mm. Who doesn't want that? Mm. Apart from I. Ha <laughs> Not only am I a vegetarian, but I've got no desire to ever work in McDonald's. <laughs> but I did, right? I swallowed it. Mm. I went into the busiest McDonald's in the country. I worked in Leicester Square. Yeah, um, Massive, isn't it? Mm. It's awful. Mm. Frying hamburgers. I, my face ended up covered in spots because of all the bloody grease in the air. <laughs> but like lots of things in our lives, Dodge, coincidence, fortuitousness, or whatever you want to call it, synchronicity. Yeah. I uh, I was living in Finsbury Park at the time in yeah. like a little bed set and um, I got on the tube to go home and I realised that sat opposite me was the manager, Junior, who was also going to Finsbury Park, which I didn't know is where he lived. And so we were talking, he was asking me about what I was doing there and everything and he had paperwork with him and I said, oh, what are you working on? And he said, oh God, every week I've got to do these damn reports. So I said, oh, let me have a look. And I said, oh, I can help you with those. And he said, could you? I said, yeah, obviously I can do them all for you. I never had to fire a fucking hamburger again. Yeah, happy days. Was what it. was that? What were you doing there then? So I was just writing his weekly management reports for him. He asked to send back to head office, but he didn't want to do it. And yeah. I didn't want to fire burgers. Yeah. So it was a good trade. Win-win. Win-win. Well, tell me your route. Tell me your route after right. that. So, you know, you've, got, you've got some story. <laughs> so what happened then was I, um, I was at LSE and I thought to myself... London was, School of Economics. Yeah, London yeah. School of Economics. Three uh, years? Yeah, three yeah. years. Well, <laughs> kind, kind of. of yeah. <laughs> kind of, because... I wanted financial security, I wanted financial stability, I'd had everything taken away from me. So my goal was always that I I just wanted to be financially secure. Yeah. So it wasn't like I wanna be a millionaire. I didn't even think of it in that context. I thought of it like, right, I've got to be earning six figures yeah. and I've got to buy my own house yeah. because coming up on you know council housing and, and, and never owning your own house, yeah. that was like probably my biggest driver. Same. And then I thought, but I really don't want to do this boring shit that everybody else is doing from LSE. Like they're going to work for banks and yeah. they're going to work in the city. And I was just like... The corporate world is... <sighs> if you don't have that personality, <laughs> yeah. you just don't fit in, yeah, right? And, and I don't think mm. you have that personality mm. and I don't think mm. I have that person. Mm. Well, I don't think it'd work out. Mm. Um, and I just, I wasn't really 100% sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I just wanted to be financially safe, right? So, um, but this this other creative side of me, like I've always loved writing, but again, I grew up, my mum was an English teacher, had no money, and I thought creative people can't make real money. Yeah. So I never thought I could pursue a career as Is a... Is that what you thought? Creative people can't 100%. make money? Really? A hundred percent. interesting. Yeah. Our limiting beliefs mm. are fascinating because mm. the worst limiting beliefs are the ones that you can't actually even see. Mm. So you don't even realise you know them. So one of the things that I've learned over my life, my career, as I've hit different levels of success is that where I feel like I've handled my poverty mentality, mm. right? And poverty mentality is not dissing people who haven't got any money. Mm. It's when you grow up poor, mm. you you look at money in a different yeah. way. You have different fears, different triggers associated with it. So I thought I dealt with all that shit. And what I realized was we just have different levels. Yeah. So I was all good with my mindset until I hit this level. And then I had to work on it again until I hit this level. Yeah. And new level, new devil, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to be a creative, really, at my core. If I had my way, if I won the Euro lottery, I'd get the fuck out of here. I'd go and buy a mansion in in Santa Barbara and I would write movie scripts. That's mm. what I would do. Mm. But as I thought, I couldn't do any of that because I didn't have that background or those connections. Who didn't give you the belief system? Was it was your mum and dad didn't give you the belief as a kid that you can go and do things? Was there something? They didn't have. They well, didn't know that at that age, did they? No, I mean, yeah. my dad was just a prize a dickhead yeah. and, and and like had nothing positive to contribute to anything. Yeah. Um, my mom is amazing and resilient and she went back to university as an adult to retrain to become a teacher. But she's like, she grew up in the 60s as part of the whole like yeah. civil rights movement. She was a massive activist. So she's always never worried about, she's never been focused on money. Yeah. She's been focused on service. So yeah. how can I change the world for the better? And her way was teaching. Mm. And and so I grew up 
with a great role model on the one hand, but really bad role model yeah. on the other hand, right? And and so I had no one around me to model for what success looked like financially yeah. or what success could look like for me. Mm. And so I had to create it from scratch. Mm. And there was a competition in Cosmopolitan magazine. How and old are you here? I was 20. Okay. And maybe maybe nineteen, maybe probably nineteen actually. And it was for people. It was, it was for girls at uni uh, to write for the magazine. So I entered the competition. I I won the London area. So I was one of I think probably ten from around the country. We all started writing for for Cosmo, and um and I loved that. And I realised that that was like you know something that I was passionate about and I loved. But equally, I remember asking the editor how much the journalist got paid there. When she told me, I was like in my head going. Fuck that, yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Peanuts, isn't it? Nothing. Mm. And then how everything changed in my life mm. was that, um, well, firstly, for contacts, I've been a mad boxing fan my entire life. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> like, I, listen, I, I can give any man a run for his money <laughs> when it comes to boxing talks, so don't even try it, Dodge. Um, and I, I'm just a huge fan. And I went into the editor's office one day and I was waiting for her. Of Cosmopolitan. Of Cosmopolitan. Yeah. I'm waiting for it to come back because I was going to talk to her about a student placement over the summer. Yeah. This was like Easter time. Mm. And I was waiting for her to come back. And so I was sat here. She, she would have been sat there. And right here on her desk was this great big pile of letter-headed paper. And Cosmo has a very distinct font, a very yeah. distinct letterhead. And yeah. hey, you just couldn't help really seeing it as like red Cosmopolitan. Mm. I just sat there looking at it thinking... Oh, I wonder what would happen if I absconded with a little bit of letter-headed paper. Yeah. And I wonder what would happen if I wrote Chris Eubank a letter to yeah. say that I'd been commissioned by Cosmopolitan <laughs> to <laughs> interview him. <laughs> Please <laughs> tell me you did this. Of course I fucking oh, did. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I swiped the paper. Yeah. I wrote the letter. I got a letter back from Matchroom, uh, from Barry's PA, saying, yeah. yep, we've got the... We, you know, we would love Chris to do the interview. I'm not sure Chris would love to do yeah. the interview, but we would love Chris to do the interview. And they set it all up, and I thought, oh, "Fuck! What am I going to do? I've never interviewed anyone my yeah. entire life, yeah, ever." And um, plus, what am I going to tell? What am I going to ask him? <laughs> well, I was more, more worried yeah. about what was I going to tell the editor at Cosmo. Yeah. When, like, so at some point, someone's going to figure this out, right? So what I did was, um, I went and waited for Chris at the Grosvenor House Hotel, and. Uh, if you've ever done anything with Chris, he's always fucking late. Yep. So I'm there for an hour, doesn't show up. And then I'll leave this person's name nameless. But then the features editor of The Mirror at the time showed up and she waited an hour. So I was waiting two hours. She was, And then he finally turns up and he rocks up and he's, you know, he's gregarious. Yeah. says hello to everyone. She is so fucking pissed. Yeah. She is a right cow. Yeah. And um, she, he, Chris says, all right, so uh, sorry, who's Shah? So I said, oh, um, yeah. and he must have looked at me thinking, fucking hell, you're like, how old are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then um, he said, okay, well, you've been waiting the longest. And like, let's get up. We'll go and do your interview first. Yeah. And then, then I'll do you one next. Yeah. And she said, well, hold up a second. Do you not know who I am? It was the only time I've ever heard that line. Yeah, horrible. Ever horrible in my whole line. life. But she literally said, "Do you not know who I am?" And I was like, "I've been quite feisty my whole life." I was yeah. like, um, I, "I'm literally going to start an argument in a second. I thought, "No, Shah, this is probably not the place." Like the Grover House Hotel <laughs> yeah. in the middle of everyone. Yeah. So to cut a long story short, uh, we ended up both going up to his. He had a big suite and he ordered lunch and he was very generous, very apologetic. I said, it's cool. Do her interview first. Not a problem. Mm. She's like, I'm not having anyone sit in on my interview. Mm. And he's like, well, like I've kept her waiting for two hours. So uh, she's going to come up and have some lunch whilst we do the interview. Or I'm just not going to do the yeah. interview. 45 minutes in, she walked out, stormed out, slammed the door. Yeah. The next day, the front cover was uh, an hour in Eubanks company and even the Pope would want to smash his lights out. No. So Chris turns <laughs> to me, thinking that I'm some bona fide yeah. journalist yeah. and says, so... What did I do wrong? Like, what should I have done? Yeah. Like, you're a journalist. Tell yeah. me, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so me and my naivety said, well, to be quite honest, like, I don't know. Why did you agree to do that interview? Because that's her style. That's yeah. what she's like. And you should know that that's what she's coming for. And he picked up the phone. Barry, <laughs> why have I did So then he hung up the phone. He says, so what should I do? And I said, well, I said, it depends. Like, first of all, what are you promoting? Like, what's the point of doing this interview? You've got nothing to promote. Yeah. He says, yeah, well, I have got something to promote, but nobody knows about it yet. And that was Ben Eubank Define. too. Yeah. Um, and then he asked him a couple other questions and we got talking. And 
we kind of did like a half-assed interview because yeah. he then in the middle of it just said, do you want a job? And I was like, yeah. I had no clue mm. in my life what this job was. Mm. But I just said yes. What were you thinking it was? Well, hopefully it wasn't a ring card girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I cared about. Yeah, I gonna... <laughs> the amount of times, yeah. the amount of times that people used to think I was a ring card girl yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> hilarious for them, not for me, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, you lot underestimate me at your, yeah. at your, at your peril. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to end this funny story, I, I got back home and um, he'd asked my number and I didn't even have a mobile phone at that point in time, right? So I gave him my home number. And um, I was living with my boyfriend at the time, who was also called Chris. Oh, no. And this is hilarious. <laughs> so I, I get in and I open the door and my boyfriend's standing there and he's like, so how did it go? And I was like, yeah, it was amazing. It's like, tell me all this stuff. He's like, oh, you got a message on, your, on the arts machine. So I played the message. I can't do a Eubank Please, oh, I was about I to say, I have you heard Eddie Hearn do a Eubank one? Oh, he's fucking brilliant. mental. It's, brilliant. Uh, Eddie's just a brilliant yeah, period. yeah, yeah. yeah. So Chris has left me a message and it basically says, oh, I've got to pack a bag because we're going we're, and meet him at Gatwick Airport at 8.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my boyfriend was like, what? what? <laughs> Quality. I was like, no, it's not like that. <laughs> and do you know what we did? Go on. I met him and Barry Hearn and we got on a plane and we flew to Old Trafford. And I was told there and then... <laughs> We're putting on the biggest fight that the UK's ever seen. Yeah. We're going to put it on Old Trafford and it's Ben Eubank too. And, wow. and you're responsible for all the promotions. Happy days. I was like, okay. Happy days. Because what you don't know. Yeah, you just be, just you wing it and go for of it. Course You've you got do. the confidence. Yeah. Mm. And I thought it can't be that difficult. Mm. Where did you learn from? So when you got that opportunity, were you like, oh my God, this is a dream come true? What was your next steps then? Were you thinking, right, I need to get behind this? Honestly, mm. I was like a sponge. And, yeah, and, okay. and, and I was, I was semi honest. Right, like semi honest. Like I told Chris, look, you know, I'm still a student, right? Yeah. And I think you know what Chris is like, right? He loved the fact that I was at LSE and I yeah. was smart and I could sit there and like read contracts upside down yeah. and I could do shit that could be beneficial and yeah. helpful. And I said, but honestly, I really do. I, I know what I'm doing. Like if I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm going to go ask Barry. I'm going to go ask I'll one find of the out. team. I'll yeah. find exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I'll find out. Yeah. Figure it out. And if yeah. I can't figure it out, I'll ask. Yeah. I just work twenty four seven. Like, I just was relentless. I just did, I went above and beyond and above mm. and beyond and above and beyond. And then I met someone that you've interviewed. Go on. Who has become like my, my adopted dad, uh, Ambrose Mendy. Ambrose. So Ambrose, I met what Ambrose when I was 21. he's got. Oh, Whoa. He is yeah. a legend. Yeah. I met him when I was 21 and um, I was with Chris and Chris made me drive his fucking Range Rover as well. Oh, I think I was more scared about driving yeah, his car than I was about putting on the promotion. Yeah. And we drove to Ambrose's house. I think he was living in like, you know where we went? We went to John Fashion's house and he was down Bishop's Avenue. Okay. Uh, that, like, that super, super rich area. Yeah. So that's where I first met John, the first time I met Ambrose. And then Ambrose just took me under his wing. Did he? And he just like, well, I'll help you. Like, Did you then go and work for Ambrose or were you sticking no. you stick with Chris? I started working with Chris mm. until he retired for the first time. But Chris was under the stable of Matrim, Barry 100%. Hearn and Eddie Hearn. Yeah. Well, Barry Hearn back yeah. then. Yeah. So what was Ambrose doing there? Because Ambrose was meant to be like the next big thing, the next Don King of England. And he should have been. Yeah. He should have been. Yeah. But you know his history. Yeah. He, he messed that one up himself. Yeah. Like he, he is, if I was asked to pick my dinner party like you know your absolute yeah. ideal the irony is i picked barry and ambrose yeah same right same i picked both of them same he just got into things he shouldn't have got into mm. and he should have kept his head down kept his head focused mm. because he is super smart super talented intelligent potentially mm. he was a little bit before his time yeah i think he was because as the only successful black promoter yeah, yeah. he you know he he negotiated the first million pound football deal yeah. for a black footballer, which yeah. back then was a massive yeah, deal. Yeah, huge amount, yeah. Um, he That's is, equivalent of 100 million now. Exactly. Mm. Fucking mental, mm, huge, right? Yeah. So he was the real deal. Yeah. And, and super well connected, super well liked, yeah. right? Yeah. Really, really. I see him at ringside on Sky Sports at every big fight. Of course. Yeah. Because everybody loves him yeah. and creates a seat for him, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just a shame. It's just a wasted, a wasted, massive wasted opportunity. Mm. But... When he was out, he come down. He come down. He come down here. I know. Yeah, and we had a we had a brilliant. We, in fact, we made a two episodes on him. He is is a legend. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, the I, stories. I used to go and visit him in Brixton Prison. Mm, mm. 
So when he was out, he looked after me. That's why I bought my first me. house, right next to the prison. <laughs> when he was in, I looked after him. Yeah. So we did like yeah. a little bit of a swap, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I've got stories for days about that yeah. one. I mean, I don't know how many of them are actually yeah. good for a podcast yeah. or actually. I, I got I got stalked by an unnamed boxer, but you would know who they were. Okay. Like proper stalk, broke into my house. And I thought I was either going to get murdered or raped. And I wasn't sure which one it was going to be. And I managed to get myself, I, I managed to talk my way around it saying that I just, that let me just go and get my, and we'll go out to dinner and talk about it. Oh, it was just, it was so fucking mental. But I knew. Did you know that person before? I, I knew the person because they were friends with somebody who worked with me. So okay. they'd been in my vicinity. Yeah. And had decided that I liked them, but I was teasing them. And I'd never had a coffee with them or talked to them yeah. like by myself. And um, he broke into your house? Broke into my house while in you're Islington. A um, no. Uh, so I had uh, I had an office on Prebend Street in Islington. I had a big seven-foot front gate. Yeah. And then when you over the gate, there's yeah. a little courtyard. You'd go into the front door. And the whole downstairs was my office. And then there was a door to the flat going up. Yeah. And I knew that if I made a run for it, yeah. if I didn't make that... I was either dead or raped or yeah. both. Yeah. So I, you know, maybe because I grew up the way I did, I had a bit more resilience yeah. and I kept calm. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, why don't you just let me go shower and we can go out to dinner and can have a talk about it? Because, you know, I'm just really embarrassed. I made the whole thing up so I could just buy all I want, all buy I could time. think about. How can I buy time? Yeah. And I knew that I had a phone upstairs. So I walked up to my flat, kept my flat door open so it didn't look untoward. Yeah. And I went into my bathroom, sneaked my phone into my hand, went to the bathroom, turned the shower, and I called Ambrose. Mm. You don't want to mess with Ambrose. You don't want to mess no. with Ambrose. It's not even messing with Ambrose, messing with his black book and everyone he knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> and all, all, all I'll say after that was I was never bothered ever again. Yeah. My biggest regret is not like, at one point in my career, I was asked to be the CEO of, of a social network called Bebo. And I was given a 5% equity stake. And that company sold for 850 yeah. million yeah, yeah. 18 months later. Yeah. So most people would think that's a massive regret. You yeah. lost like 45 million or whatever it yeah. would have equated to. Yeah. It's not. My biggest regret is that I got out of sport. My biggest regret yeah. is I didn't become an agent because I had loads of people. I had loads of people asking me if I wanted to be an agent. Yeah. I had loads of people offering me support. But do you know what? Again, this is where when you grow up poor, mm. all I could think of, this isn't a proper job. Yeah. It's not a proper job. It's not a proper career. What's not, not a proper a... job? What, being an agent? Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? Okay. That's what I was thinking back then. Yeah, okay. And and now when I look back at it, I'm like, are you You'd fucking, have nailed it. You're fucking batshit crazy. You're yeah. the only female in the industry. Yeah. I, I can read contracts back to front, upside down, yeah. inside out. I'm super commercial. Yeah. I'm fearless. Yeah. I'm really, relentless. I am relentless. I would, and, and I'm really fair as well. So yeah. I'm always looking for a win-win in a yeah. deal. So I can build my relationships yeah. over years because I'm not trying to screw anyone over. Yeah. I would have killed it. Yeah. But I just didn't think Why? it was a proper... But it wasn't really a proper thing back then as no, we're growing. It wasn't. It wasn't, like, oh my, it wasn't. But now it's unbelievable. So how long were you, how long were you Chris, you back then? A couple of years. What was your next step after being with Chris? Did you learn a lot? Did you get a lot of his contacts? I got uh, yeah. Did you were you there again? You know what? I'm gonna I'm, if I'm me, I might as well get all my, my contacts I possibly can. I don't know if I was that forward thinking, mm. but I do remember one situation where we were in a meeting with Barry was there, and we were in a meeting with um, Sky TV, and it was Kelvin McKenzie, I think at the time mm. he was running it, and um, they were trying to tell Chris what they could and couldn't do in this contract, but they because obviously I'm the only woman in the room, so they think I'm some halfwit, so they sit me next to the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't read because I'm female. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm reading Lennox's contract yeah. and I'm seeing in Lennox's contract what they paid him in pay-per-view, pay what per percentage. View, yeah, yeah. And I'm listening to what they're saying they can do and they can't do. And Chris actually made a comment. Like he said something like, I'm sure that's not what you've done for Lennox. And then they just blatantly lied. I'm like, okay. I've seen it. So I'm like, I feigned that I was sick. Yeah. I suddenly started feeling ill. And I said, Chris, I've got to go. I'm so sorry. Um, can I just talk to you just for a second? I just, I think I'm going to faint. Went outside <laughs> and I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah. He was so angry. Yeah. Like, do you not understand how important this? I was like, shut up. Listen. Listen to me. Yeah. Hold up. Yeah. I said, this is what that contract says, right? I can't go back in there. Yeah. But just that's give your, your heads information. Up. Yeah. And then, and then from that moment. Can you remember, can you remember what sort of deal that was? The pay-per-view back then. I don't know how much it would have been back then. We're talking 20 plus years. <laughs> yeah. More. Yeah. I can't remember no, what the okay. deal was. But in comparison to what people get paid now, it was nothing. Yeah. But at the time, it felt like a lot. Because I think Chris's deal with uh, Chris's deal with Sky was, I think, eight million over twelve months. Yeah. 
which back then seemed like a lot of money yeah. until, you know, you see what Fury's getting paid. Yeah, wild numbers. Wild numbers. But I reckon it's all still, still relative. Because if you were talking about eight million pound back there for a, for a year's graft, or uh, and I don't many fights he had in his contract, that's massive. He money. had a lot of fights though. He had six fights in that contract. He I did. Think. Okay. He had a lot of fights. But still, was getting a million million. But that's stupid. You yeah. shouldn't sign up for six fights. Yeah. What did you flip over to next? You must have gone what the, another door opened somewhere. The personality you are, what opened up? I'm I'm genuinely I I when people say I'm lucky, it pisses me off because mm. I think that you create you, you create luck, course. right? Yeah. Now I'm not saying that luck doesn't exist, but I'm saying the people that we look at who we say, unless you've inherited money, then you are fucking lucky, yeah. right? But the but other you people, can also be unlucky inheriting money. That's a whole nother story and I 100% <sighs> yeah, agree. Yeah, agree. And I've seen real, Same. real self-destruction with people who've inherited Same. a lot. But for me, my experience with self-made people is yes, they had a lucky moment, mm. but what they did that's different to other people is they grabbed it with both hands yep. and they just Went ran it. with it, agree. right? They just ran with it. And so, Pretty soon after he retired the first time, and this is when, you know, at the time I know why I made the decision, but in hindsight. What, what year was this, roughly? 96, 97. 96, and how old were you then? I was 23. 23, 20, okay. 20, so he was retiring and you're going, right, there's another opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I was going like, there's, there's so he was going to retire. I wish in hindsight then I'd set up a sports agency. Yeah. That is literally... Is that your one big regret? My one big regret in my yeah. entire life is I didn't set up a sports agency. Because yeah. even today, if you look at what I do today, I'm I'm a mad deal maker. Yeah. Like, I, I, I am like a combination of the matrix and limitless. Like, I can see how this person connects <laughs> with that person. And if I put it together, mag they can't all see it, yeah. but you know it. Yep. You know if you put it together, magic's going to happen. 100%. And they just got to trust you enough to... How good is that film, Limitless? Oh, I don't watch films, but I don't watch I many, it. but I love Limitless. I love it. Same. I love it. Same. I love it. I do love it. And that is my only regret when I look back on it. Okay. Because I think not only would I have been super successful, but I would have been really happy. Yeah. Right? Like, cause, In that sporting commercial world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't, I, think there's a be, I don't think there's a better industry the buzz, in the world. The, the buzz. buzz of being ringside yeah. is nothing like it. Like nothing like it. The buzz. Have you met? Karen Brady. Yeah. 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 What do you think of Karen? I think she's very different to me. I yeah. think I think she grew up very differently. Yeah. So I think she's an amazing businesswoman. Yeah. But I don't think that she has that that the the understanding of the underdog. Yeah. Right? So she has the understanding of the boardroom yep. and she's fucking brilliant yeah. at it. But if you have the understanding of the underdog, particularly in boxing, yep. like she, I could see how she can work in football. Yep. I don't think she would have been as successful as she has been mm. in something like boxing because typically boxers come from very different backgrounds. I'm not saying footballers don't, but the difference is in a football club, at that level, you're representing a club, yeah. a business. It's a business. It's a, it's a yeah. commodity. Yeah. You're not actually representing the players. Yeah. In boxing, you are actually representing and working with that individual, that human being. And I think where where I always worked really well in boxing is I understood the underdog yeah. and I was protective. Like I didn't want anyone I, I was love working the underdog. with. I love being an underdog. Me too. Yeah. And I love supporting underdogs, yeah, right? I love seeing good people win. Yeah. And I hate seeing people because they don't have the education or they don't have the experience getting screwed over because there are unscrupulous people in yeah. the world who think, well, you know, you left school at 14. You might be a good boxer, but you, you know shit about this contract. So we're going to put all this... Yeah. fuckery in there yeah. that you can't confuse understand you, to confuse you to get more money right yeah. and then we're going to tell you we're going to give you all these things make you feel like we're doing a big deal and then when your purse comes there's nothing left yeah. because you didn't read the small print that yeah. all your training expenses it's coming out when I you know, yeah. negotiate, I remember one time I was negotiating um, Howard Eastman and uh, Bernard Hopkins and Don King was the he, he was he was the promoter I think he was the co-promoter actually mm. and um we were on a conference call and we were talking about the flights. And so was, they were sorting out Howard's flight and Howard was flying like business class. And then they put me in economy. And it's not because I'm too bougie to fly in economy, but yeah. I wanted to make a point. I said, guys, listen to me. You've got two choices here. You either treat me as a talent or you look after Howard yourself. Yeah. So when he gets there, he's your issue, not my issue. Yeah. And I'm still going to get paid the same amount. So make your choice. And Don burst out laughing and said, put shot on a fucking first class He's yeah. quality. Yeah, because they, they, he appreciated what I was saying. Yeah, you're like, standing up for yourself. Yeah. And do you want the headache of yeah. the fighter or would you like me to deal with the headache? Yeah. And if that headache isn't worth yeah. putting me, treating me like the talent, mm. then do it yourself. I'm all right with that. How naughty is the boxing industry? I don't know how naughty it is now, but I would say it was relatively naughty previously. Mm. 
Yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did and I didn't. Mm. So the bit that I did meant that there was more deals to be done, yeah. right? So the deal maker in you yeah. loves the little, mm. loves the little hustles, yeah. right? Yeah. But when you're protecting your talent, when you're protecting your fighter, mm. if you're on the right side, it's all good. It's okay, yeah. But you never want to be on the wrong side yeah. where people are making decisions against you, mm. not because you lost, mm. but because you weren't the chosen one that night. Mm. Uh, I was just going to say the divergent tangent on luck is that I do think I got lucky at some points in my life, right? It's about meeting the right person at the right time. Yeah. And just by complete weird random coincidence, one of my friends from school, her dad had been called in to... Uh, present a piece of work. He was a copywriter to James Dyson. And at the what, point... Di what, Hoover's Dyson? They're not a fucking Hoover, mate. Go it's on. a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> oh, yeah, Hoover's actually your brand, isn't it, back in the back in the day? I'm going to slap, you. slap you. Go on, carry on. <laughs> so, and they do air conditioning now. They do they everything, do don't they? And they do fans. And they do really fucking good hair dryers, actually. They do, don't they? Well. Yes, they do. Um, I love that story of Dyson, by the way. Well, when I met James, yeah. James uh, was still working from his house. Yeah. So this is not what year we talking? Dyson that we know Roughly. today. Oh, probably late nineties. Like, yeah, late nineties. Mm. Um, and he had just won his lawsuit against. So for those who don't know the story, um, Dyson is what I think probably the most successful, remarkable British, British business story yeah, of our times, bigger than Virgin, yeah. if people understand, because yeah. he owns. 100% of his company. He still company. owns 100%. Right. And this is how it happened. So he um, he he licensed his patent to that to the cyclonic technology that's in the Dyson yeah. vacuum, vacuum cleaners. Cleaner. <laughs> and he licensed that technology to a company called Amway in the US. Now, Amway in the US is a big, like, multi-level marketing company that yeah. sells everything through people to people to people, right? And they infringed his patent. So what happened was they ran out of their license and they just thought, fuck it. Yeah. Little guy in, 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 in England, England yeah. can't do shit. Yeah. We'll take the technology and we'll put it into our own vacuum cleaners. <laughs> now, James taught me, I, I think, honestly, you put James and Chris next to each other and you think they have nothing in common. Mm. So much in yeah. common. The resilience, yeah. the tenacity, the determination, the, you do not give up ever. Yeah. Like the whole box analogy is not how you get knocked down, mm. it's how you get back up that counts. Mm. And with Dyson, it doesn't matter how many times somebody says no to you, you just keep going until someone 100%. says yes. Yeah. And he was like, I, he took his house, he signed it over to lawyers and he took Amway to court in the US. And they found in his favor and he got $3 million. And that $3 million Set that he won. To invest. Exactly. Amazing. And that's when I met him. Amazing. So I worked with I worked with James, starting around his kitchen table for five years, building the Dyson brand from scratch. Is that right? Yeah, flew all over the world. He wrote the foreword to my first book. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I've always said to everyone, it was like the best MBA you could ever have yeah, done. I bet. And I just didn't have to pay for it. Mm. Working with a startup. Uh, bang on the phenomenal. Board. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, what? I was just, in, it was just an insane. Where were, you where were you living then? Where were you living at that time? Islington. Did you go Islington, and he was in Bath. Yep, so I would travel up four days a week. Wow. And then how long were you there for three years, you say? Four. Four. And then what made you move on? I couldn't get any equity in the business. As I was going to say, yeah. did you ask? Did you ask? Oh, yes. Yeah. Hold on. You would have 100% asked for some equity in the business. Of course. Yeah. And and I'll tell you when I asked, he, he wrote a letter. <laughs> to a guy called Bob Aileen, who was at the time the chairman of British Airways. So um, we were trying to come up with ways, because at the beginning we didn't have any money for yeah. above the line advertising yeah. for TV. We didn't have any money for any of that. So he asked me to come up with ways. What could we do to, so I said, you Brand know, association. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I said is, listen, whether we like it or not, the truth is that back then, hopefully the stats have changed. Like 90% of vacuum cleaners are bought by women. What's women's number one health concern? Breast cancer. And there was this there was there was a breast cancer charity just starting up and they were really on top of like just they just had all their PR and their, it wasn't social media back then, but they had everything on point and they were yeah. called Breakthrough Breast Cancer. And I said, look, I've got an idea. Why don't we sponsor Serrano Fines to cross the Antarctica in support of Breakthrough Breast Cancer? We'll design a whole like thing campaign and, and, and we'll design a vacuum cleaner and all the profits and the sales go. So he was totally up for that. Brilliant. But my pitch to him was the reason we're going to do it is not for that. It's because ITV 
are doing a documentary on yeah. Ran. And so we're going to have Dyson branding. Yeah. And the reason it's such a good association is it's one man against the odds. Yeah. So now I can take that story yeah. of Ran against the odds and use it with your story, yeah. you against the odds. And suddenly it just, it just, it was like, a massive avalanche everybody wanted to talk to james yeah. because you'd have like the head of hoover or the head of uh, electrolux coming on doing like bbc news or something and they're so boring yeah they're there in their like gray suit yeah. and, and their shirt that's not even white because yeah. they haven't washed it properly and mm. he rocks up in his like multicolored paul smith cashmere yeah. jumper and doesn't give a fuck yeah. and says just <laughs> what he thinks and everybody loves him yeah. because he and he talks about how many people said no to him every single high street bank said yeah. no i can't remember how many it was like 20 vcs 10 yeah. private equity comes everyone said no yeah. he took the idea to hoover they turned him down mila turned him down. let everyone yeah. turned him down so it is the great British mm. reinvention story, mm. right? He did not give up. He didn't give up. And I learned so much from that. Yeah. He was phenomenal. What did you learn the most from that experience for those four years? Oh, God, I don't even know if I could whittle it down. Like, one, dream big, because what the fucking point is dreaming yeah. small? Like, his ambitions yeah. were from day one, we're building a global brand. Yeah. We're building a billion-dollar brand. I mean, I think he's worth five, six billion pounds. He's, what, he's, he's worth that the today. The company is worth company, that. He's know. probably worth half of that yeah. because since his, you know, he owns. Yeah. Um, I, I, I learned that if you really want to do something, you find a way to do it. Agree. Right? You, you don't give up. Yeah. If you believe in it, just because everybody else is saying no to you, maybe they're just all short-sighted. Yeah. But to 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 marry that, you also, I think you need good people around you yeah. to tell you, you know, is it a dead end road? Yeah. Or is it a dip? Yeah. So if it's a dead end road, if it feels like a dead end road, looks like a dead end road, whether that's a relationship or a business or anything, stop the sunk cost. Because yes. this is what we do in relationships and business. Yeah. We've invested so much time, effort, and money. Yeah. We just keep plowing into it, yeah. even though we know it's not working, yeah. right? Yeah. So again, you've got to be honest with yourself. Is it one of those and we're just being pig headed yeah. and carrying on? Or is it, no, I know this is right. Yeah. I know this is going to work. Yeah. I'm just ahead of my time and I need to wait for people to catch up with me. Yes. And that's where he was. Yeah. And that's what I learned from that. And I, I learned the resilience. And also, do you know, like Dyson was in his 50s when he set Dyson up. He, James was in his yeah. 50s. Was he? He wasn't like some young... What was he? What was he doing before that? Then what? What, what, what did he see? Did he see a gap in the market? Or? Yeah. So maybe, maybe he was. Maybe he was in his late forties. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll check the stats. But yeah. he was not like he was not like a thirty-something, yeah, right? Okay. He was definitely in his late forties. Yeah. So before that, he'd been doing other engineering projects. He'd invented a wheelbarrow with a ball. He'd done lots of different things with relative degrees of success. But not the unicorn that it is today. And this is like a mm. unicorn times five. Mm. And so how many people would get to their late 40s, 50s and go, I've got a billion, I've got a billion pound, not a billion dollar. I've yeah. got a billion pound company in me. Yeah, not many. And that's what makes someone like that so mm. special, right? Because it's that inner Do you know what's interesting? Belief. What I just took from you there is how many people are running businesses and plowing more and more dough, more and more money into it, more and more money into it. It's going to work. It's going to work. 70% of businesses don't make profit. It's insane. 70% of businesses don't make profit in the UK. How mad is that? But do you know why that is? Go on. Because out of those 70% that don't make profit, what percentage of those founders, owners, do you think realise that they don't make profit? Mm, very, very, very small amount. And this is the problem. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole other podcast, yeah. but this is a problem with education, right? Yeah. So we're taught like algebra which is useless, yeah. but we're not taught how to stack up our own numbers in a business, business. to see where my profit oh. margins are. You know what? This is a whole new podcast because I'm mad on this. It is, it's, yeah. it's crazy, honestly. The education say. system is backward. Why don't we teach financial literacy? So I I, I'm all about building generational wealth. So for me, my son's mixed race. Yeah. Uh, his, his dad's from Barbados, yeah. but sadly, again, another. his dad passed away when, when he was only three and a half. So I've done so much of his journey as a single mom running my own business juggling all the fucking balls yeah like i'm a juggler on speed i just you know maybe it's green juice <laughs> I, right? i'd love to see that right <laughs> I, I would probably be totally <laughs> mental i'd have to be picked off the ceiling but i want to create generational wealth yeah. and the reason i talk about my son being mixed race is because the reality of life today is that we don't have equality let alone equity and equality and equity do different things right equality is we're all going to start the race at 12 o'clock yep 
equity is we're all going to start the race at 12 o'clock from the same starting line with the same assets. Yeah. That's not what happened. What happened is the middle upper class white man gets to start at the front of the yeah, line. Yeah. And then as you go further and further back, it's based on your gender, your race, your upbringing, your socioeconomic, yeah. all of these things, right? And you can't pretend that's not how it is because it is how it is. So for me, what I want to do is I want to create generational wealth. And so it's not about buying a Ferrari. It's about saying, I want not just my son to start further closer to the line, but I want his kids and yeah. his kids and his kids because that's the only way that we level the playing field. Do you think there's a, did, have you noticed that with a mixed race son? Yeah. So As what, a mum? Yeah, I've noticed, I've, I mean, I am, I am fiercely protective of my people, not just of my son, yeah. but of my people in same, general, right? Same. And, and I am fiercely outspoken about race and gender and I don't have all the answers and I'll probably say something wrong and I'm all right with that because mm. I'd rather keep trying to move things forward yeah. and make a mistake Rather and be picked stum. up for it yeah. than be stum yeah. because yeah. I'm too fearful of saying yeah. anything. Yeah. So I, I am always speaking up about these yeah. things. What I've noticed with my son is, so unlike me, he's he's grown up very differently, right? So he went to, he's gone to a private school his whole life. And the irony is I swore blind I would never send my kids to a private school mm. until you live in London mm. and you have the money and you look at the options mm. and you obviously want to do the best thing for your kid. But my son is very fair skinned. And he had blonde, curly hair. And I remember being outside the school with the moms. And a mom came over and she had a little baby with her. And she came over talking to us and she, she said, oh, yeah, we're going to move from Blackheath, which is near where I live. And it's mm. a bougie area. And she said, and we're going to move to Broccoli, mm. which wasn't quite such a bougie area. And and she was saying, well, and someone said, well, why are you doing that? And she said, because, you know, with three kids, we can't afford the school fees and still live like in Blackheath. And one of the moms said, I can't even believe she did this. She turned around and she said, yeah, but you know, they're not like us in Broccoli, right? And she said, what do you mean by that? She said, there are a lot of black people in Broccoli. You know that? I was like, what the did fuck? Did she say that to you? She said it to the she other woman who was okay, moving yeah. to Broccoli. Yeah. So she's obviously assuming that my child yeah. is not mixed race. Yeah. So I, I can't hold my, I just can't. So it's lucky if you say that to me, you don't get punched. Yeah. So I just said, excuse me? Mm. I said, would you like to repeat that? Mm. And she just looked at me. I said, what did you actually just say? Mm. So she didn't say it again. I said, do you realize that my son is mixed race? Mm. I said, so you telling me that there's something wrong with having people who live next door to you who aren't the same skin color? Mm. Is that actually what you're saying? Because mm. if that's what you're saying, I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. I'm going to ring this buzzer and I'm going to get the headmistress down. And I'm going to ask why the fuck your kids are in school with my kids if this is how you're bringing them mm. up. Mm. And then... She started screaming, so I rang the buzzer and I called the head down. And I said, "I'm not tolerating this. Yeah. This is not. This is if this is what is carrying through. Yeah. If I ever it needs to be stopped now, doesn't if it? If I yeah. ever, ever, ever hear my son or any of his friends who aren't white having to listen to this shit, I'm going to guarantee you, those kids better be out of that classroom in 24 hours mm. straight. Otherwise, I'm going to the press. Mm. Mm. Like I don't that don't rant no, with me. Of course. So yeah, I do see it, but I see the, the what I see is that people don't realise my son's mixed race yeah. because he's so light skinned. Okay. So they'll say things thinking that it's okay. Yeah. Okay. And I just think that we all have a, we all have a duty to educate ourselves. We all have a duty to better ourselves. We all have a duty to stand up and be counted. Because mm. if you if if you can't stand up for something, then, then honestly, I think you just stand for nothing, mm. and and that's no place to live in life. Mm. Tell me about your book. What would you like to know? I want to know why you wrote it, when you wrote it, <laughs> yep. and what's inside it. All right. So uh, I've always wanted to be a creative. So for, for me, the whole book writing thing was just, I don't know, I think it was something that I'd always dreamed of. And I didn't realize that I could actually make a success of it. And I didn't realize you, you can make money, mm. really good money from writing mm. books, but you just have to understand how to do yeah, it, right? Yeah. So as it stands, I think we've sold over 250,000 books, which is not, not, not bad going Good for, for you. That's amazing. You know, as a little side career, but hit, hit little me side out. hustle. 250,000, that's amazing. Yeah, we had a Sunday mm. Times bestseller as well. Mm. And um, But How to Fix Your Shit was just, I think we all say, people talk to each other, oh yeah, I've got to go and fucking fix that shit. Yeah. I've got, that's yeah, a phrase yeah, yeah. that we all use, right? Yeah. Whether it's our personal lives, whether it's our business, our career, whatever it is, we've yeah. all got things in our lives. And I really wanted to, to bring that conversation out in the open for everyone to have, to, to acknowledge that it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, how much money you make, mm. we're all gonna have shit that we've got to fix yeah. in our lives. Sometimes it's more than others, sometimes it's less, and sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. And I wanted to 
be able to have the conversations with people and make it practical. Like, all right, if you're going through a shit time, how do you deal with yeah. it? Because I've been through more than my fair share of mm. shit times. Mm. And I, I don't I genuinely, no faux humility, but I genuinely don't think I'm anything special mm. other than I do think I have got extraordinary levels of resilience. Resilience, I've yeah. that. And you're a doer. I am. Mm. I'm uh, absolutely like my first book was called Stop Talking, Start Doing. Is that what, you, is that yeah. what it's called? It was actually called <laughs> Stop Talking, Start Doing. Yeah. And James Dyson wrote the foreword for that book. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Because I was so fed up with conversations I had with my friends. Like mm. they wanted to start a business. They wanted to move to the south of France. Yeah. They wanted to get married. They wanted to get divorced. And a year later, they're all they're saying still doing the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Just get on with it. Just crack on. Just crack on. Because yeah, yeah. what have you got to lose? Yeah. Like, what have you got to lose? I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. I love writing. I do. I do. I really love the creative process of writing. How long does it take to write a book? That not say let's go your last book three the three years a ago. Year. It takes a year. Yeah, it took a year is to write that. Um it depends. Your first book is easier because you've already got all that stuff out. Hundred yeah. percent. My second book was the hardest because you have the second album syndrome. Yeah. Right. So you're petrified that it's gonna fail because yeah. if you have a we had a runaway success with the first book. Yeah. And I, it was number one in WH Smith's business book charts for 14 months in a row. Months? Months. It broke all their records. No books ever And that was called? Stop Talking, Start Doing. Mm. Um, A Kick in the Pants in Six Parts. And then we broke it down. And it's it's also, it's because the the book is like really short. So it's like 27,000 words. Yeah. Easily digestible. Picture the Muhammad Ali in the ring in there. Yeah. Referring to, you know, you can't be on the outside of the ring criticizing those who are in the ring right. just get in there and get on with yeah. it like be ballsy and crack 100%. on 100% yeah. yeah i remember when i was working with eubank um i think it was the telegraph wrote a piece about me and they said that i had steel balls with spikes on Is i was it, like i'll take that I'll as a compliment <laughs> i think they thought that i was supposed to be like like yeah i was like an alpha female yeah. and i was supposed to be upset by that i was yeah. like it's all right i'm good with that thanks but it was how long ago is it when you got your mbe so five years and what did you get your mbe for my services to business yeah. and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I'm a, listen, if you come from nothing, the number one way to change your life is to run your own business. Agree. There is zero question about it. Mm. Unless you are super academic and you can find your way through the corporate world and onto six multi six figure salaries, maybe, but the vast majority of people who've come from nothing also don't have the best education. Yeah. So it's going to be harder to make it in the corporate world, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm an outlier because I come from very, very poor upbringing, but actually ended up having a really great academic record. So I had options. I would never have changed anything about what I've done yeah. ever. You know, I joked at the beginning saying I'm unemployable, but I, I am unemployable. Mm. Like, you know, mm. what my, I, I would go into any organization, start seeing things that I think could, yeah. could be I done better. Speak up. Right? Yeah, I agree. And that's not, employees don't really do that. That's mm. not what an employee is there for. And, and that's fair enough because we all need employees too who actually do the work and get the work done. Mm. But I think that for me, what was my proudest moment getting the MBE was one, because of what it was for, because I'm so passionate about helping other people so, be successful in business. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also I've got to take my nan. I've got to take my nan to Buckingham Palace now. My nan is 97 Go on, on the nan. 20th of May. Olive Bailey. Olive Bailey. She it's is, Olive. Let me tell you about mm. this woman. If you want to know, like my, my she's my role model, mm. period. She she is relentless in a totally different way. Like I interviewed her for my podcast and the stories she told about how hard it was as a woman yeah. in her generation yeah. versus how easy in comparison we have it today yeah. and yet she was still fiercely saying and just because i say it's easy doesn't mean you've got it right yet yeah. you've still got to fight for it my nan during covid she got covid uh in lanzarote she has my my mum's had a house out in lanzarote for a few years my, my nan at 97 next month this month she got on a plane she's been to lanzarote during covid mm. six times mm. Don't every, care. every time good for her every time the restrictions drop my nan's on a plane good for her 97 on 97 plane. it's amazing really isn't it, it? she is phenomenal and mm. and her attitude is whilst i'm alive i'm gonna live yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and die mm. i'm gonna get up and i'm gonna do things mm. yeah she's phenomenal amazing that's lovely to hear I, I don't know about your experiences but my experience has been that actually the poorest people are generous. the most generous people and my nan might not have very much, but whatever she's got, she'll give it to anyone. Mm. And and I just, she doesn't have a bad bone in her body. Mm. She is absolutely selfless. When I have my son, 
she moved in with us for six weeks and she did the night nanny duties and she was like what was she then so she was like 81 at the time so 81 quality she moved in with us and she i you know i i I breastfed but i pumped the milk and gave it to my nan my nan would wake (laughs) up in the middle of the night she'd do the night feed Mm. and she loved it so now my son and her have a phenomenal really close relationship where 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 were you received your mbe um so the, so when I actually found out about it was it came through the letter box and it had another letter on top of it. And so it, it looked like it was from HMRC. Mm. I was like, fuck's oh, no. sake. <laughs> I didn't open it because yeah. I was like, oh, for oh, God's no. sake, there's yeah. another bill, right? Yeah. So I put it on the side, didn't open it straight away. And it must have been a, a close to 11 o'clock at night. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to open it, you know, like just get it open done with yeah. and I opened it and I was like what the fuck yeah. and I started reading it and I didn't even finish reading it I put it down and called my nan yeah. I called my nan and then I called my mum and the reason I called my nan in that order is because like I know that even though it feels like she's she's like she's unstoppable she's 97 yeah. and I know that I don't have forever with her yeah and okay, truthfully, like I know you lost your mum. Like mm. I don't know that I've got my mum for longer than yeah. I got my nan. My nan just has managed to live yeah. an extraordinary long yeah. period and really healthy. Yeah. But I just needed my nan to know, and I called my mum straight after. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting when you talk about nans and mums and all that sort of stuff? There was a stat come out the other day that some people will only see their parents maybe fifteen more times. Wow. Like because you might see your parents once a year. Or if you're lucky, you might see him twice a year or something like that. And that really dawned upon me. That really whacked me around the chops. Because I'm really close to my... Obviously, my mum's passed, but I was really close. I'm really close to my dad. And it's just that shocking thing that I saw the other day. I was like, wow, the average person might not see their parents maybe 10 or 15 times. And maybe if they knew that, you'd make more... That's my point. My point is, if you know that we're all going to die, your life and your mindset completely changes. It does. If we all know we're going to fucking die, we are going to die, all of us. But as soon as you realise and know that, I just think that the life just becomes a lot nicer, smoother and calmer. Yeah, I think for, for me, I learned that when when my son's dad died, he died in an accident in Oxford. And, Car? Uh, yeah, and my son was only three and a half. Um, and it was literally gone to see his parents and I was just... Oh, your other half was going to see his parents? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And um, How long ago was this? 13 years now. And I remember getting the call. I was in Whitsport on the beach with my son and his his nan called and um, the police had gone to her house. And it was like, I had, I didn't realise it at the time, but um, subsequently I realised I had PTSD for three years because I don't have any memories for two to three years afterwards. And then I started to have to, you know, put my life back together and figure everything out. And uh, the one overriding thing is what you've just said. It made me realise that this is all we've got. Yeah. I can always make more money. Yeah. I can always make more money. I can't make more time. Yeah, agree. And I'm not going to lie and say that, you know, I live like that every day. There mm. are definitely periods of time where you forget that, right? Yeah. Because it's like any muscle, like if you don't get reminded of it. Yeah, that memory's forgotten, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So you get a bit complacent mm. and then something else happens and it's a trigger and then that comes back and you're like, hold up a second. Do I really want to be doing this? Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah. Stop doing it. Yeah. Did Life's you know sure. the average person lives for 29,000 days? No, I didn't. And when you think about that, that what age you're at now, and you go, well, cut that in half, say, how many days have we got left? When you start thinking, you're like, shit, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. No. And you want to make them count. Yeah. And for me, that's my driver with my business and my work is, you know, for me, money is about creating experiences. Um, Yes, I want financial stability and security for myself, my son, his kids. But beyond that, it's genuinely not about fast cars. Yeah, it's about having a nice home. But it's about how many holidays can we have where we create memories? Right? How many experiences can we have? Right? Like for my nan's 80th, I took her to New York and... We went up in a helicopter around the Christ. Those things, you know, like, Mm. it's that stuff. All I ever wanted as a kid was to live in a house. That's pretty much all I wanted. That's all I wanted was to live in a house. A a normal house. A normal house with with no noise, no nightclubs next door, no music, no fights going on, no toxicity. All I wanted was a house. And when I earned my first big chunk of money in my first year, because I was doing the nightclubs, stashed it all. I went and bought my first house in Brixton. Exactly what I did. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Because when you grow up like that, so you grew up with all that noise around mm. you and I grew up with the the feeling that everything was going to get taken away mm. from me. 
it was my overriding. How old were you when you bought your first place? I was 21. Oh, I was 20, yeah, 21. Yeah. Mm. But in a way, like, I, I think it's because when you don't have that, you crave that normality. Yeah. I used to see my friends with their normal lives and their Same. normal families and Same. their normal houses. And Same. I was like, why can't I have that? I want that? a piece of that. Right? I used to go around to friends' houses and mum and dad would be cooking together. And loving each other, and and <laughs> you'd be like, "What the, the fuck the is this?" I know, and the TV would be on. There'd be yeah. silence, and they had a nice home. They had a car at the front, and it was just trees out the back. And I was, I was just, I was craving for that. Those kids would come back to the pub, and want to be sleeping in the pub with us in the flat because we had fruit machines, we had craziness going on. There was just they wanted your life, and you wanted yeah. their life. Yeah, but no, I loved the buzz of my life because it was. But you also different. wanted. You I wanted, wanted the calmness. Yeah, you wanted to be able to check out for a day. I or Agree. Two. But but Dodge, think about this, right? If you had grown up like that, do you think you'd be? No. There you go. Hundred percent wouldn't there be doing go. what I'm doing, and all the risks and gambles we've been taking over the years. Right. And I don't even think it's about you doing what you're doing today. It's 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 the, it's the latter journey. part of that, and it's the latter part of what you just said. The risks and if you wake up tomorrow with an idea, you are not going to be scared to pursue it. Agree. They're going to be scared to pursue it. Yeah. Because they don't know anything different other than stability. Yeah. I remember the best lesson I've ever had in my entire life was when I lived in a hostel for homeless families with my mom. And like I said, it was like a room mm. half the size of this. And the bed was like one of those camp beds that mm. had like little coil springs coming through the mattress, that, right? I used to sleep on that for, for about 10 years. Right, it was a big, the, there you go. There's a big bar on the back. And That's I to, it. I used to have a bad back. And right. dad was like, shut up, son, you'll be fine. <laughs> right, so we're clearly twinning here. Yeah, yeah. But my mom sat me down and she said to me, like, this is genuinely the best life lesson I've ever had. Mm. And she said to me, Shah, I want you to take a good look around you. I want you to remember this and I want you to take risks with your life because no mm. matter what you do, you are never, ever, ever coming back here. Yeah. And that stuck with me. So every time I feel scared about making a decision, I yeah. think, what's what, the worst one, that could yeah, happen? Like, what is the worst that could happen yeah, today? Yeah. Like, even if the whole world collapsed and you lost your business and I lost my mm. business, you'd build it back up. Yeah. It might take 18 months, but, but you build it back bit. up. Of course that's it the is. fun bit. And now today, you got a whole entire phone of contacts of people yeah. that would help you do it. Yeah. Let's move on a bit. I want to find out a little bit about your current business today. Okay. What do you do? Uh, we provide training for small businesses and entrepreneurs who want to grow online businesses. So whatever you do, whether you're an educator, a trainer, you have a product business, a service-based business, then we'll teach you how to make that business grow and we'll teach you how to make it more profitable. Um, and we usually provide that, especially during COVID, through online courses, online trainings, and online workshops. But and the reason why I said my my kind of schedules change is because this year I made a conscious decision that um, as much as I love doing all that and continue doing all that through online courses, my personal time now is gone right back into the pure entrepreneurial space. Yeah. So I've just joined the board of two fintech companies. I mean, I find the whole tech space- Fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So uh, yeah, um, a, a few years ago, I used to run a tech fund with a guy who's just floated for 2 billion. 2 billion? 2 billion. Wow. Yeah, 2 billion. We had we had breakfast at the get beginning. Get a piece of the pie? We, no, I didn't get a piece no. of the pie, but we had breakfast at the beginning of the year and, and that conversation really made me, he was like, what are you doing? Like, you must be bored now. I know you. What do you want? Like, what do you want to do? And so it's just got my my head yeah. spinning, thinking of ideas. So yeah. now my day is pretty much divided. I'll probably spend 20% of the work working on, 20% of the week working on that business. My Sorry, my old business, yeah. which I've got a team running. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, I'm looking at ed tech opportunities, fintech What's opportunities, ed tech? educational technology. Okay. So, What's that? Um, so if you think about... Online courses. Well, if you think about it, right, online courses are not really ed tech in themselves, but the platforms that host the online courses, they're ed tech, right? Yeah. So ClickFunnels, for example, yeah. you've heard of ClickFunnels, yeah. that would be ed tech, okay. educational technology. And so for me, the really interesting space in this online world is not the training, because have you heard the red ocean, blue ocean theory? No. All right. Red ocean is where it's highly competitive. All the fish are there, but so yeah. are all the sharks. And, and they're trying to eat, all eat each other. Yeah. And so th there's only one race, and that's the race to the bottom. And that's on price, on everything. Yeah. Now, over here- I don't a, like that. I hate that. I don't like that I red one. That. Yeah, right. okay. Yeah. Over here is the blue ocean, right? All the fish are Niche. swimming, yeah. and they're all here doing their own thing. And you can just go and scoop up all the fish because yep. you don't have to fight with anyone else because yep. everyone's over here fighting each other. Yep. So right now in the online space, everyone's over here fighting each other for the online space and training and courses. Yep. But actually the blue ocean is 
the technology, the platforms, yep. the apps that serve these yep. people. So rather than trying to compete with that lot, go yeah. create. And by the way, mm. if you create a, a platform, an app, a software, you've got a 10x exit. You yeah. can't exit a company that's yeah. based on you and your name. Yeah, agree. It's super hard. Yeah. So these guys are also- 10x EBITDA. Yeah. 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 And, and maybe even more depending on yeah. the tech space, right? Fin it can go up to 20, you know. FinTech yeah. can go up to 20, mm. right? Mm. So over here, you know, over here, everyone's trying to get to the first seven yeah. figures. But whilst you're trying to get to your first seven figures, people forget to tell you how much money they're having to spend on. We're not talking profit, right? Agree. This is one of the things that pisses me off Agree. about the industry, right? Agree. You want? Why don't we focus on, are you taking home six figures? Because yeah. I don't care what your turnover yeah. is, but I want to make sure that everyone who's running their own business learns how to take home six figures. Agree. That's life-changing. Yeah. That allow allows you to create generational yeah. wealth. If you have more than that, great. But actually six figures, mm. taking home six figures, mm. that's the number that you need to make real change. Yeah. But, you know, over here, they're trying to compete with getting to seven figures. And over here, they don't give a shit because yeah. they're building for a hundred million exit. Yeah. They're not focused on any of that shit. Yeah. They're focused on building technology and platforms and resources that yeah. are sca infinitely scalable, mm. that don't require bigger teams to make it happen, that, that it's the platform itself yeah. that is the asset, yeah. not the individual. Yeah. Have you read Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter by mm -hmm. Curtis Jackson? Mm -hmm. if, if there was ever anyone that I would pay to interview, it would be Curtis Jackson. Really? He's literally, he, he, yeah, I've got this phenomenal picture of him with my first book. Yeah. He sold 3,000 copies of my book. That's a whole different story. Okay. He posted on Twitter about my book and I sold 3,000 copies in one day. But uh, he, Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent, wrote a book called Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter. Yeah. And he talks about how in his industry, most of the rappers want to get paid. Yeah. So they will get paid to do product placement or they get paid yeah. for sponsorship. And he was working with Vitamin Water and they offered to pay me. He said, I don't want money. I want, I want points. Pie, yeah. I want equity. Yeah. And that equity is apparently worth when he when they sold 150 million to him. Mm. And and I think if you can make your money elsewhere, you don't need the money. See, I prefer that. I don't need the money to go, oh, you pay me X a day. Give me some give me some points and I'll be here for you twenty four seven. Right. Yeah. And actually, it's all about leverage. Mm. So at this point in your career, at this point in my career, it's mm. about leverage. It's not about the hours you put in. Mm. It's about the years that yeah. you've put in prior to this, to the minutes that yeah. you make phone calls. Yeah, Agree. that's what it's about. Agree. And it's all just, and it keeps your brain. Yeah. You're going to be challenged. You're going to see all these different ideas. And when you can sit across businesses and industries that are outside, maybe they're on the periphery of what you do. Mm. It expands your own business. Yeah. It expands your own way of thinking. Yeah. You'd love it. Yeah, no, I think I... Just I, pick the right companies. Yeah, I agree. Imagine if you and Eddie Hearn were speaking yeah. like 10 years ago. Yeah. That would have been a good one. That would have been a cracker. But I might have beaten you to that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to say, I have absolutely loved this and we could speak for hours. Oh, I've loved it too. It's been absolutely joyful. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's been really, really yeah. good. Really and we're going to stay really in touch it. for the rest of our lives, I reckon. Deal. Yeah. I reckon we'll come up with some little ideas. A new plan. Or two. I agree. Yeah. In Barbados, Sandy yeah. Lane. <laughs> Sat on the beach somewhere. Shaw, sure. loved it. You're a star. Thanks Thank for coming you. down and coming on the show. Loved it. Really appreciate it.